This is Chad Brashears, and you're listening to Never In My Wildest Dream podcast. This podcast is about creating a behind-the-scenes look with coaches, fans, and reporters from our point of view, sharing cool stories as only we've lived them. The goal is for you to learn something new to help your life and allow yourself to take a break from everyday chaos and let us give you a behind-the-scenes look into our world. Never In My Wildest Dreams podcast begins in... Good morning and welcome to Never My Wildest Dream podcast, Wednesday, January the 20th, 2021. It is Inauguration Day in Washington, D.C. We will touch on that in a little bit with one of our guests. But before we get to that, let's talk about the world of sports from yesterday. The Pens beat the Caps 5-4 to four in overtime. That's two times they've played back-to-back. Both games have gone into overtime. In the NFL, Patrick Mahomes has passed some steps but still remains in protocol. That'll be the talk of the entire week leading into the conference championship weekend. And men's basketball, Florida hammers number six, Tennessee, 75 to 49. Michigan beats up on the University of Maryland, 87 to 63. Alabama thumps LSU, 105 to 75 in LSU. Looks like Will Wade's having a little bit of trouble not being able to pay players and get the right guys down there, losing by 30. In today's action, the biggest game that I want to talk about is Clemson at the 20th ranking travels to Georgia Tech. I think Josh Pastner and Georgia Tech will upset Clemson today. Looking forward to today's show. First guest will be Greeley Myers, who is a good friend of mine. I met him while working at Shenandoah University. And my second guest today will be Nima Omidvar, who has been all around the world in college basketball. Looking forward to speaking with both of those gentlemen today. And Never In My Wildest Dream podcast will be back here shortly. Never In My Wildest Dreams podcast begins in... Three, two, one... Welcome back to Never My Wildest Dreams podcast. Excited for my guest here today, Greeley Myers. Greeley's a good friend of mine. We met while we were working down at Shenandoah University together. He's the assistant vice president for advancement. He's been there for six years, and he and his family moved to Winchester from San Antonio six years ago for that. Um, Greeley went to McMurray University down in Texas, which actually is a big or was a big Division Three power in basketball, which we'll talk about that. That'll be fun. And he did his master's at Duke, which is why he is a big Blue Devil fan. So Greeley, loved having you on the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. I'm not as you know qualified as some of your great guests you've had. I've been listening to your podcast since you rolled it out, but... Uh, I really am excited to be here. Thanks, Chad. No, you're very welcome. And trust me, you and I text back and forth during every Green Bay game. We'll get into that side of stuff here as we have this conversation um, with being Green Bay fans together. But, uh, you know, I enjoyed working with you and becoming your friend while at Shenandoah. And through that process, we were able to talk a lot about different sports at every single level. And and you're very knowledgeable. And I think this is going to be a lot of fun. So you went to McMurray which is a strong Division three school, and, and I know basketball at least. Is it strong Division three in other sports as well? Um, basketball is probably their main, their main, thing, main thing. You know, in the, in the 2000s, after, well after my time there, they became a, a really strong uh, track presence. They've got two national tra- Division three national outdoor track championships for men's track. 
Um, but but they've been a really good basketball school. At times, they've been a really good baseball school. Football has been up and down, uh, but it's a you know a, a strong. You know, it's a typical D three school. Uh, there's a lot of D threes out there in, in Texas. So, um, but yeah, that's kind of what they're known for. They've had you know for a period of time they had two coaches over 50 years. Now they they've gone through coaches recently, but that's what made them so strong from a basketball perspective. So, I mean, you hit on that a little bit with the, the coaches for 50 years. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that's why Duke is in a position that it's in right now? And we'll, we'll kind of hop right into that since you're a Duke fan. Do you feel as though that's why they've been as successful with having the longevity that they've had? Well, yeah, and I'll be biased here, right? But not only the longevity, but look who they've had in that seat for 40 years. True. I mean, I mean, you know, you can say a lot about Kay, and I know he gets a lot of criticisms here and there, but but who he is, and and arguably probably one of the greatest coaches of all time, if not the, and we could argue that if you wanted to, but um, but it's been who's been in that seat for so long. I think it has made them so strong, and his ability to adapt, I yes. think, has been over his time there has been really um, has been, of course, crucial to their success. So I think. Of course, longevity, but then who's been in that seat? And in Carolina, could be the same, right? They had a little bit of, of of shift of coaches between Coach Smith and Coach Williams. But once you got the right guy in that seat, you almost forget about Coach Guthridge and Coach Doherty that were there. You know, you almost think it went straight from Coach Smith to Coach Williams, which it didn't. So you got to have the right guy in the chair, as you know. The, the coolest part, and we'll touch base on that right now, the coolest part about Carolina, and you're right, I mean, Bill Guthridge just kind of fell in right after Dean Smith had retired, and then Darty did his thing, even though he didn't wasn't as successful, I guess, as you know the Carolina faithful liked to be before they got Roy. They've kept it in the, in the same family, though, which is kind of cool to me. Like, you know, the Carolina basketball family has been in the same Dean Smith blood for a while as well, just like, you know, Duke has had with Coach K., Here's one question for you. You know, I know you're an adamant sports fan. If Coach K is in today's world as a starting coach at Duke, does he survive? Uh, no, knowing his close. past, he I mean, could, I, that you know, you can say, of course, he would. No, he wouldn't. Be. I mean, I, I don't know his exact record over his first three years, Chad, but it wasn't good. And he, and not only was it good, Smith won the title in '82, mm-hmm. and then Valvano, who came at the same time as Coach K did won the title in 83 at North Carolina State. Correct. So, um, so no, I don't think he would have lasted at all. And he credits that. I mean, he, he acknowledges that. Yep. And the AD, I think it was Butters, who was the AD then, uh, for sticking with him. Coach K's always recognized that when, when he's talked about that. So, I don't know. I don't think it's close that he wouldn't have been there. Well, you, you know, it's funny. While you were talking, I was able to pull that up here. So, his first year was 1980. went 17-3, 6-8 and eight in the ACC, and they made it to the NIT quarterfinal. The next two years, he goes ten and seventeen and eleven and seventeen. So he goes twenty-one and thirty-four the next two years at Duke, and they're the years that Carolina won it with Michael Jordan, and then Valvano won it with the uh, the miracle, you know, and, and down the stretch against Faisal Majama. Um, it looks like the 83-84 year, they went 24-10, and 10 and it kind of took off from there. So that was really Jay Billis, Johnny Dawkins, and those guys truly saved his career. Well, there's a great, um, there's a great, first of all, two things. There's a great book called by John Feinstein called The Legends Club um, that talks about Valvano, Smith, and Krzyzewski, and it really goes into that in depth. And then there's a great uh, special that was on the ACC Network a couple years ago about the class that, that saved Coach K, and it is that class. It's Billis 
Amaker, Dawkins, and then after that, well, actually, Amaker came after Dawkins, but it was Billis, Dawkins, Allery, mm-hmm. and then Amaker came in after that. But it's that class that, yeah, kind of got him on the right on the right path. He got the right guys in there. Um, but that that's uh, that was a really interesting time in, in, in Duke basketball, and then it kind of took off from there. And then, of course, you probably remember the the thing was, well, he can't win the big one, right? He went to all these Final Fours, yep. but they could never win the championship until '91. So, um, as, as a Duke fan, you kind of know all that stuff. But but uh, I sure am glad the butter stuck with him many years ago for sure. Well, I mean, and, and I am too. And you know, obviously, I'm not a Duke fan, and and. You know, I mean, in football, I'm a Notre Dame fan, which we could talk about that a little bit. But it, as a college basketball fan, you grew up in the state of Maryland. You kind of learned to not hate right. Duke, but you don't like Duke. That was an, I miss the ACC. I don't know how, about how you feel about all these moving and shifting of conferences and all that crap. But the ACC was great. There was nothing better than a Saturday afternoon having Jefferson Raycom sports on. And you could watch a great game with um, I want to say it was Mike Jaminski, and he, I think he's a Duke guy. Was one of like the main commentators. Like I grew up on that stuff. That was always on the television in my house. So I do remember him going to. If I'm not mistaken, I think they went to three Final Fours. He was a runner-up one time, and he, it was ten years. It took him ten years to get his first championship at Duke. Yeah, it took him. It took him a while. And you bring up a really great point about those. I miss the old ACC I, I, tremendously. And you bring up a good point. I was thinking about my time when I was at Duke. I did go to Duke, like you mentioned, that my time at Duke. And I and I, I was in Camden for two seasons, basically. I had season ticket as a graduate student for two seasons. And my best memories are not those, I mean, of course, the Carolina games. But my best memories are those Saturday afternoon games. Mm-hmm. Um, we played Clemson or Virginia or it was Maryland. And it always seemed like now that's kind of changed because everything's prime time. But those Saturday afternoon games at 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock, those were the those are the things that are my best memories of, of being in camera or those games. And I sure miss the old ACC, the Maryland, you know, the Maryland games. You played everybody twice. You know, it, I just miss that. And I, 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 I know the, the, the dollar sense, the business sense of why conferences have expanded. But I think you've lost something special, especially with college basketball, when you got rid of some of those smaller conferences and gotten these big you know, big, huge, major, you know, big conferences. Well, you know, you know, you and I talked a little bit before we came on air here, which I, I appreciate you being able to kind of throw a little bit of ideas of what we want to talk about here. And and fans are key in college basketball. I think, you know, they're key in college football too. I mean, don't get me wrong. When you put a hundred thousand people and make it like you know Penn State, the third largest city in the state, on a Saturday afternoon for a couple hours, as an example, that does make a big difference. But when you put 9,314 people in Cameron Indoor Stadium screaming against the opposing team, you have a home court advantage. I mean, you honestly do. And yeah. and they've had that for years now. So you were, and not to, not to pick up age-wise, but what years were you at Duke for your oh, Masters? Eight, that's okay. I'll admit my age. I, I was there in the, uh, the seasons of 93, 94, and 94, 95, and then... I graduated with my master's in December of 95. So to put it in Duke context, I was there for Grant Hill's senior year, which he basically singly, single-handedly led them to the championship game against Arkansas, which unfortunately lost. Yes, he did. Uh, but that team really had no business being in the Final Four, to be quite honest with you. But yep. it was Grant Hill that did that. 
And then the, the second year I was there was the, from a Duke historical perspective, was the year that Coach K sat out most of the year with, with his illness. Did he, was that and a back so injury? You, you went from the high to the low oh, in, I... in two years there. Yeah. <laughs> now, was that his back injury? That was the back deal. Yeah. Yep. That's what that I, was, I remember that growing yeah. up as a kid. Um, yeah, I remember Grant Hill making that run and. You know, you, we talk a lot about, and you, you hear about the Christian Leitner, Bobby Hurley stuff, and I remember watching that live. I mean, I can tell you where I was sitting when Christian Leitner hit the shot against Kentucky. I was sitting on my grandmother's floor. She had one of those TVs that was like the floor television with like the wooden right. box around right. it. And I remember right where I was sitting when he hit that shot. But Grant Hill doesn't get as much acknowledgement about how good he truly was at Duke. Like, he's not always in those contexts. Yeah, no, he doesn't. Um, and and I guess I'm I'm biased because I watched him in person for a year. You know, every game I watched him. You know, for the home games I was there every home game his senior year. And he doesn't get enough credit. There was a game against one of my fondest memories of Cameron. There was a game against Clemson. Clemson was good in the nineties. I mean, they were they were solid. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a game against Clemson where he had a hand in the last twenty one points, whether assist wise or point wise in a tough, hard-fought, one of those ACC Saturday afternoon games. And that's when I thought, man, this guy is really, really special. Unfortunately, I think injuries derailed him in the NBA. But but um, he was he was something special at Duke for sure. And then, like I said, uh, basically carried that team to the to – the, within a, a couple seconds, honestly, the national championship game. Yeah, and the national championship. Yeah. So you t- you brought up Clemson, which was pretty cool. So and on February the fifth, nineteen ninety four, Clemson came to Cameron Indoor and they won seventy eight to seventy four. That that's a war when you're in Cameron Indoor and you only lose by four. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean that's exa- that's the game I think I'm referencing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and there was some yeah there was some great ACC games like we talked about earlier back then. You know, so that was a lot of fun. I I really cherish my. My memories of, of that time, I lived about a mile from campus in an apartment, and you wouldn't drive because of traffic, so you just got, you know, you woke up, and you walked over to the campus, you walked over to Cameron, you stood outside for like an hour, because graduate students are different than undergrads with the ticket distribution, so we had season, I had season pass, a season ticket, and uh, so you get there about an hour to, to, to you know, walk in and get your spot as close to the floor as possible, so those are some special times and some good memories for sure. So for people that are listening who have never been in Cameron Indoor for a game, express exactly what it's like. It's electric. Um, it's unique. If you go to the Duke campus, if you ever go to the Duke campus and you look for Cameron, uh, now they've built it up a little bit because because they put a lot of money into the basketball facilities and they built a huge kind of performance center right next to Cameron. But back when I went, Cameron was kind of a, you, you could easily overlook it. It's kind of tucked back off the road. It's not this huge structure. It's this old kind of brick gym building. Reminds you kind of like an old high school gym. Mm-hmm. You know, you walk in on you walk in on the same level. You know, and you walk in on the same level as the playing surface, and then you go upstairs to the seats, or if you're on the lower level, you walk into the bleachers. Um, so it's electric. It's unique. Um, it's now they put some air in now, but back when I was there, they, they didn't have a lot of air, so it's hot as heck. You're in there for a Saturday afternoon game, and you got a 60 degree day game in February in Cameron. It, it, it's warm in there for sure, um, but it's a it's a, it's a special place, and um, it, it's extremely loud, um, and 
so it's yeah it's just a lot of fun and, and when I was engaged to my wife we've been married 26 years now and I was engaged to my wife she was still back in college in Texas and she came out while we were still dating and I was able to to work some things with ticket wise and I took her to one game and and she's not a huge sports fan, but she still states, yeah, I got to go one-to-one game in Cameron. She still remembers that. So um, if it sticks out in her mind, it's, it's a, certainly a special place to watch a game for sure. Absolutely. I mean, I've been to Cameron once. So when I was in high school, we would play a baseball tournament over Easter break because we had a week off being at a Catholic high school in Tarboro, North Carolina. So when we get to Tarboro, we'd usually you'd play like a nightcap game and then you'd have like a – usually an off-day game or, you know, an off-day totally. So we would go and we'd do the run-into-the-Dean-Smith-Center type situation, and we try to go over to Cameron for a little bit and that type of thing, just to kind of get an idea, you know, what it was like around those places. Then we'd go back to the hotel change and go play, or we'd go watch, you know, who we might play against next in our tournament. But here's my Cameron story. So we are going to Carolina first, and then we were going to hit Durham on the way back to Tarboro. So we go over to the Dean Smith Center, which I don't know if you had the opportunity to go over to that while you were at, were at Duke or just, you know, go around it. But it's this yeah, massive, massive structure. I mean, it's just gargantuan. And, you know, you feel like you're just kind of floating on the floor. You're looking up. These banners are everywhere. These massive jerseys are hanging. And then you go to Duke, and you're to your credit of what you just said – you know, if you don't know it's Cameron Indoor, you're going to walk past it because it kind of looks like just another building. You go in and it has a lobby like every other high school gym that I've been in, and then you kind of just walk in through these little tunnels. Now, I've seen on television now that they have expanded it, but you go in, there's the upper seating above, I call the gold bars there, but the upper seating is yeah. all, all seats, and you have wooden bleachers, which you don't have a lot of wooden bleachers in high school anymore. So it was kind of cool to see all of that stuff. Um, my story was we were in there watching a workout and we got kicked out because Elton Brand was doing a one-on-one workout and we, we they didn't want us in there while he was working out. So that was kind of cool. <laughs> the, the best, and, and I don't mean to derail this whole conversation about Duke, but actually the coolest part when I went there was in the summer. In, you, when you get back in late summer, early fall, before they really started workouts, um, your graduate students did have to camp out uh, to, to get their season tickets. So okay. during the camp out weekend, we were there and I said, hey, you guys need to walk in the camera and take a look. And actually, there are some incredible pickup games that go on in Cameron. And I think they used to go on over in Carolina. And guys from Carolina were there. I mm-hmm. mean, they were there were guys from Carolina and guys from Duke, and they were playing pickup. And that's where you get kind of a special a special feeling about about what how cool that is, and, and we won't get in. We can get into the Duke Carolina rivalry maybe in another conversation, but that's why that is so. That's such a special rivalry, and um, and so some of those. So I, I understand your story. Uh, we got to watch the pickup for a little bit before he got kicked out, but uh, again, that's, that's that's really cool. That's a cool story about Elton Brand for sure. So here you hit on something there real quick. So a lot of people don't realize how I'm not going to say tight. I think. Tight is probably the wrong way to describe it, but the Carolina basketball players and the Duke basketball players really don't hate each other, like people think. It's the fans that probably hate the fans more, but the guys probably do play pickup and hang out and talk and you know probably go to the same barbershop for all we know. But it seems like that's what I've picked up on at different times talking with different people. How do you kind of see it that way, or did you see it that way when you were there? Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it's as bitter as the as the with the players it is with the fans. And and now in this day and age, as you know, with AAU ball and stuff, I mean, some of these guys have played together. Absolutely, you know, as teammates. So um, and they know each other because of the AAU circuit. So it's it's a lot different than it used to be. Um, but but the fan perspective, this is what people don't realize about the Duke Carolina rivalry and about North Carolina. The University of North Carolina is North Carolina school, plain and simple. The, the average person in the state of North Carolina, you're a Tar Heel fan. You're not a Blue Devil fan. Duke is the, a private, you know, a private institution uh, in the in Durham, North Carolina. That's honestly, as you know, Chad, if you've been there, it's kind of secluded from the rest of the city. Um, it's kind of behind these ivory walls. Honestly, I mean, it, that's kind of how it is. So uh, the rivalry is really between the two fan bases, and uh, that's why it's so intense. Is because it, it, you know, they are eight miles apart. You you always hear that they're fifteen minutes apart. You know, to one campus to the other. So that's why it's really so intense. So you do have some very loyal Duke fans, no doubt. Um, but that's why. It, but that's why I always cringe when you know back in, before COVID, when the NCAA tournament was going on, they would put Duke and Carolina in the same regional. I mean, the same pod. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in different regions, but they're playing the first week and they're playing in the same arena. I hated that. Right. Because honestly, that arena is going to be packed with Carolina fans. No matter who Duke is playing, they're going to be rooting against Duke. It's not a home court advantage. True. So, that's true. Um, that's kind of the way the, the fan, you know, the kind of the, the background on the fan base is there. Yeah, not to hit on like a bitter subject at Duke, but I I'm a big thirty for thirty guy. So um, I, I watch a lot of those, and I think they're an absolute blast to watch. They're they're really done well. But I was watching the other day on my phone, Fantastic Lies. And um, it, it's obviously about the Duke lacrosse situation, and it's really interesting in how Durham perceives Duke and Duke perceives Durham. And it was really interesting. I didn't think of it that way, to be completely honest with you. I thought it more along the lines that Durham and Duke did not like each other. Did you feel that when you were down there? Um, not necessarily to that degree okay. about um, – not liking each other, but but there was definitely a divide. I mean, okay. there's no doubt about that. And they, um, yeah. And they did mention in that, um, I guess, that documentary that people do see Duke as the ones with the crest, I think is what they called it, and, you know, the big right. buildings and all that kind of stuff, which I thought was pretty uh, – it was different to hear how people really viewed everything there, which was pretty wild. So, yeah. yeah. Um, for sure. March Madness. You brought up March Madness. How do you think March Madness is going to be with every game looks like being played in the state of Indiana this year? I think it's going to be different. I mean, we talked off air before we came on. You know, I think that now I think there's a lot of parity in college basketball. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you know better than I do, but but uh, I'm not the expert. But I, there is definitely a lot of parity. So I think you're going to see some some really good matchups and some really good games. But I think you are going to miss. Obviously, the environment. But there's no better day, Chad. We talked about this before. There's no better better day than that first Thursday and Friday. No. None. In, it, in the whole sports landscape, all year long, there's no better day than the first Thursday and Friday of the NCAA tournament. And I think what you're going to miss, without them being you know being spread out and with without full arenas, is these 14-3 upsets or 15-2 upsets or uh, 4-13 upsets. Because I don't think you're going to have an arena full of fans getting behind a 13 seed when they're down by two with three minutes to go to a four seed. I don't think you're going to have that. So I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think you're going to see the huge upsets like you would normally see maybe in the first and second round. 
I think you're going to see a lot of great games in terms of parity, and I think it's going to mimic the NBA bubble, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's definitely going to be missing what 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 we're used to, and I and I I really hope that in a year from now we're in a whole lot better spot. Uh, but I think it's going to be different. As a basketball fan, I mean, I'll, I'll watch. But you and I talked. You know, I, I'm I'm having a hard time kind of getting into this season just because I think college basketball, like you mentioned earlier, does does miss the fans and the environment is just not the same. And so um, I'm glad we're going to have the NCAA tournament, but I think it's definitely going to be different. And I, and I do wonder if we're going to have some of those upsets like we normally get. No, I'm with, I'm with you on that. I mean, you know, I've been fortunate enough to go to a couple NCAA tournaments. I've been to a couple final fours as well. And I've been to the NCAA tournaments to watch the games. And there is this sense in an arena. First off, the student sections or the fan sections of those teams are not very big. They don't get a lot of tickets. They're usually like across from the bench or behind the bench, and they kind of have like four little boxes or what really goes eight boxes, and they come down to four boxes. And, I mean, it is pretty cool to watch like the Duke band come in because I did watch Duke when they were up in Pittsburgh a couple years ago. The Duke band comes in and sets up. Duke does this warm-up thing. As soon as their game's over, that band is out, and another band's coming in and sitting in their seats, and they're pumping out music ready for, like, you know, let's just say Virginia Tech to come in and play because they played Alabama that night. And it is pretty unique to watch that environment, and it is a circus. The people that buy those tickets are just basketball junkies, and I'm a basketball junkie. You're a basketball junkie. I I mean, that, that term doesn't sound really great or you know proper etiquette but that's what we are i mean we get this sport and we have fun with it but when you put nobody in the stands i think it's going to be an unbelievable situation of just blah the games might be really good but you're right i mean umbc fed off of an arena in charlotte to make that happen they really did and 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 i think that you know they upset virginia because they knew at that point eighteen thousand and some change were behind them and it is a big difference And I do believe Duke. I mean, I pick on Duke basketball on the show. I'm sure you've heard me pick on him. But I did say with uh, with one of my buddies who works for CBS Sports that I see Duke losing more games at home this year than a lot of years combined because of the fans. I, I just truly yeah. believe that. Now, yeah, and I think there's, a, and again, you know me because of our Packer fandom, and I'm I'm less optimistic just because of the teams I love. I, I am always, I, unfortunately, I'm more pessimistic. But I, Duke has got to turn around. I, I don't. I think there's a real chance they'll make the tournament. Number one, the way they're playing right now. Um, but uh, I, but what it became evident to me about this year is when they played Illinois and Michigan State mm-hmm. in December, mm-hmm. and that it was just a it was a sterile environment. There was no, there was no Cameron Indoor Stadium uh, home court advantage against those games. Now, honestly, the better teams won. And if that arena is full of fans, Illinois and Michigan State probably still win. But uh, they don't run away with it like they did against Duke in those games. In my opinion, there's just no home court advantage. And um, so again, like I said, hopefully a year from now we're in a lot better place. But we just got to trudge through this basketball season. Right now, I think. And, and I still watch because I love basketball like you do, but it's harder for me to get into. Yeah, and, and I'm in the same boat. I mean, you know, <clears throat> the first time the Duke, this is the first time since February 8th, 2016, the Duke was not in the top 25. Right. That, that's a, yeah. I mean, but that shows credit too. I mean, you know, we talked about one and dones, and I'm going to get on that in a little bit. You know, um, love Calipari or hate Calipari, he pretty much has ridden the coattails of the one and done rule in college basketball. 
And the ones that have evolved have won championships or competed at a higher level, a.k.a. North Carolina, Kansas, and one that I honestly did not think was going to go down that rabbit hole was Duke. And Krzyzewski became very good at getting the one-and-dones. And and he's done a really good job of getting those high-profile kids. And with him working with USA Basketball, he's learned how to manage extremely high um, egos and thoughts of, of themselves as a player. And I think that's why he does as well as he does with those talented kids. Well, you mentioned USA Basketball. And I think that was a big part of it, honestly. Because when he took the USA basketball job, I was a little worried about how that would affect how that would affect Duke. And honestly, I think it gave him. And I could be wrong. Again, this is just my my observation. Sitting for a forty nine year old guy sitting from his couch, right? right? But my observation is it gave him some street cred with yes. some of these guys. Yes, that he could he could coach Kobe, he could coach LeBron, he could coach Chris Paul, he could manage those egos. He could and and, and in a way that. Everybody felt good about, right? I mean, so it gave him some of that credibility with some of these one and dones, and I think that's helped him. I just wonder, is there another shift coming? Is there another shift that's needed? Because you look at the teams that are doing really well right now, a Gonzaga, a Baylor, uh, some of these teams that have won championships the last several years, Virginia. What do they have? They had some great talent, no doubt, but they, they have age. Mm-hmm. I'm not just talking sophomore age. I'm talking junior, senior age. Yes. And I just, I'm not saying that he has to. I'm just wondering if he, in his, whatever he has left, is there one more shift that might be coming um, that could, that maybe he shifts it just a little bit to try to adapt to that? Because I think college basketball is changing yet again. And so I kind of wonder how that's going to pan out and how much, how many years he might have left to kind of navigate that. Yeah, I mean, I think, if I'm not mistaken, didn't Kevin White announce he was stepping down as the AD at Duke? He did, last week, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's a big piece to me because, I mean, listen, Coach K has probably a longer like lifetime contract than the president at Duke. I mean, so that's not where I'm going with this. But when you have guys that you really enjoy working with that make your job a lot easier, I'm sure that that has made Coach K just be Coach K even more. Who knows what the new AD is going to be like? You know, he, does he want to fight against that forty plus years into this thing? I mean, how old is he? Is he is he mid seventies now? I think he's like seventy three. I could check on that. His birthday is in February. Uh, it's like Valentine's Day or the thirteenth. And yeah, I might be demented because I know that. But um, I think he's either seventy. He's going to maybe turn seventy four, either seventy three or seventy four. I think you're you're, you're dead. Listen to you as as a Duke fan. You're dead on. He's seventy three years old, and his birthday is February the thirteenth. That's kind of <laughs> that's kind of scary. You must really like this team. <laughs> it's, it's it's sickening, really. I mean, it's sick that I know that. But um. <laughs> But yeah, so I, I, you know, my son and I, my, my 17 year old's a huge Packers fan and Duke fan. Poor kid, I'd pass it down to him. But, uh, you know, we talk about this all the time. How many years do you think he has left? And, and I think he's got three or four, yep. maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, so we'll see. Yeah, I think that is, that's going to be a key thing. And, and don't be fooled. He's picking his, he's picking his guy. I mean, yes. whoever takes over for him, he's picking his successor. And I have no idea who that's going to be. But um, he's going to be making that call. So, but it, but the, but there's a dynamic with the new AD for sure that might play into that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you you said about the one and dones and you know Gonzaga and Virginia and those guys. Um, I think that the best part about where the college basketball is right now is it is giving kids who have decided to stay in school and not chase 
the bag, as they would say, as the kids today would say, chasing the bag to go get the money in the NBA. It's given them what they deserve, which is, hey, I've worked my balls off for the last four years. I deserve a chance to go win a national championship. And, yeah, for sure. And, you know, the, the one-and-done guys thrive when they're able to have the summer workouts, as you know, the Division Three level, we can't do that. But when you are at the Division One level, you have the basically the OTAs for summer ball. Then you have all the fall stuff. And then when you get into season, you kind of know each other by then. These guys really don't right now. The young kids don't know the college game, the college speed, the college work, because COVID has really hampered that. So the ones that have been around the block a little bit are the ones that are able to really be successful right now. I know people were saying, you know, I'll go back to Calipari in Kentucky. Kentucky's struggling early. They lose to Richmond. I said, if Kentucky plays Richmond in February, it's not even close. Because right. by then, the guys have kind of been ingrained a little bit. I say the same same thing with Duke. I mean, Duke's going to be in the same boat. He's going to get this thing righted. I mean, you know, if you we talk about Carolina. So I'll give you a little Carolina scenario just as we're having conversation here. Frank McGuire was the head coach at Carolina from 1953 to 1961. Dean Smith was 61 to 97. Gufford's was 97 to 2000. Darty was 2000 to 2003. And Roy Williams started in 2003, and it's 2021. So they've had five coaches since 1953 at Carolina. And Duke, we already know what their situation is with K. That's why those blue bloods are successful. Because there's consistency. And, you know, and I'll I'll segue consistency right into the next topic that you and I were going to talk about for fun. There's a lot of consistency at Lambeau Field, isn't there? Yeah, it sure is. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm a diehard. You're a diehard. We text all games. Uh, We text leading into games. It's it's kind of like a an obsession for me and my and my family and you know that with Kevin and Dad and obviously you've been able to meet those guys and have these conversations but there's just something different about being a Green Bay Packer fan. There is for sure. And it, it is it feels like a family and you know we've been to uh, Lambeau a couple times one time to see a game and you're sitting watching a game on a eighty thousand seat couch is how it feels that's just how it really feels in there and. We've been blessed to have two Hall of Fame back-to-back quarterbacks. Not a lot of people in the organizations, I should say, have the ability to do that. Um, how are you feeling about this weekend? Where I know you're an optimistic guy. Where is your mindset going into the weekend? It's Wednesday. Got a, you know about four days left till we get there. What are you feeling? Uh, I'm I'm nervous. I, I you know we texted on su- Saturday and Sunday. We I did not want to face Brady. No. Um, Brady is Brady. I mean, and I just did not want to face Brady. I I wanted to face Breeze because I thought that I thought the weather would really wreak havoc with them and with him. I don't think the weather's going to affect Brady all that much. Um, on the on the flip side, I was really really nervous going into the Rams game. Um, I listened to you and Kevin last weekend, and if it was a call-in show, I would have called in and said, hey, wait a second, guys, you guys are being way too optimistic here. Because uh, I was nervous going into that game. But the way they handled that game and, and what grew for me for that game was the way LaFleur handled that game. Absolutely. I mean, you and I were texting during the game. He had a specific plan, and he was going to run it right down their throats. He was going to beat up their defensive line as much as they could. Now, I know Aaron Donald was not 100%. 
but he was going to try to take it right to him and then pick his spots. And lo and behold, in the fourth quarter, there was his spot, you know, that, that, that play action pass to Lazard. So I feel confident with LaFleur. You know, he's a young dude, but I feel good about how he prepares and how he gets his guys in situations to be successful. Um, you know, as Packer fans, especially this year, everything kind of, when we do well, right, Chad, it kind of follows a plan. Like mm-hmm. we get up by, by 10 or 14 and we kind of play with that lead most of the game. And the other team might cut it to seven and we might get a little nervous and then we're able to have a last drive or run out the clock or whatever. I'm not so sure that game is going to, the game this Sunday is going to be that way. I, I expect more of a back and forth deal. I really think now if we can get up 10 or 14, I think we're in the driver's seat. Yes. So I think it's going to be a back. I think it's going to be a back and forth game. Um, I think we'll win, and I can't believe I'm saying that out loud because uh, I, I believe I'm this fanatic fan that believes in jinxes and all that stupid stuff. But but uh, I think it's going to be a it's going to be a heck of a game. It's going to be it's going to be a really. I think it's going to be a back and forth game. But I just feel like, and you talked about on your podcast, there's something special with this idea of of Aaron playing in Lambeau for an NFC championship. And I, and I think that's going to be helpful. He's never done it. Right. Right. So, so he, you know, I go back to, let, let's rewind the clock as far back as we can. Wish we could rewind it back to like before COVID hit and just kind of keep things moving forward without that. But we're not able to do that. But let's rewind back to draft night. Because if I'm not mistaken, you and I texted during draft night, it was kind of like, what the hell are they doing? Right, yeah, they're I was going to, upset. and I was like, "Really? Like they think this cat is done?" Well, as a coach, and and as a competitor, and a guy that was fortunate enough to play college ball, play after college, and then you know get into the coaching realm and coach guys that have been able to do the exact same thing, you always find an edge, and and I always try to talk myself into an edge and jinx myself and play mind games with myself to just get angry and play better. Um. If Gunicus didn't do this on purpose to piss Aaron off, he should probably just freaking admit it. Because he pissed him off to the point of like, screw you, here comes perfection, watch. And he's done that for the entire football season. He's played with the, it's not a chip on his shoulder. I mean, it is the largest chip in the NFL right now. And he has fun yeah, doing it. Yeah, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but not only that, Chad, but, but um, it's... But also the way Aaron's handled it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not—he didn't come out and really publicly blast anybody. No, you know, he kind of kept quiet. He really didn't say much. When he did say much, he kind of said the right things. And then he, you know, he—he he just moved forward. Mm-hmm. And then you got what you got with this season. So um, that's what—that's what is I think has been impressive is he's kind of handled it the right way. And he seems like he's in a whole different place. Mentally, um, mentally. Oh, absolutely. I don't want to say say spiritually necessarily, but he just seems like he's in a different. He's like in a different place, and um, that's been very, very evident. uh, Very, very evident this season. So I just, I sure hope it. I hope it keeps up uh, for for two more games, um, and and we'll kind of see. We'll kind of see what happens. Yeah, you know, um, I sent you a couple of those YouTube things that I found the other day. I think one of them was like the uh, little pump-up video that those guys do on that one channel on YouTube that I subscribe to, which I thought gave me goosebumps. And then the one they did on Aaron Rodgers, the rise of the king or the reign of the king back or whatever it came out to. Um, <clears throat> it was funny because two, three years ago, Aaron was like this enigma. 
Like, you really didn't know who he was, right? Like, you kind of had an idea, but he was really quiet publicly, didn't say a lot. I find more podcasts that he sits on on YouTube now than ever before. Every Tuesday, I listen to the Pat McAfee show, send those to my brother and my dad because we enjoy watching and hearing the behind the scenes of Aaron, kind of who he is. But he did one earlier this year when they talked about the draft. And his agent must have texted him and said they're taking a QB. And I don't know if, if you heard this one or not, but he decides to walk to his liquor locker and he gets out his bourbon or scotch or whatever he drinks. And he said it was going to be a four finger, which is about filling the entire glass up. He goes, I knew what type of night it was going to be. And that was going to be the last time I had a night like that. I was going to prove everybody wrong. And honestly, he really has. Yeah, He's the league MVP. Oh, there's there's no doubt. In my, you know, of course, I know we're biased, but yeah, there's no, there's absolutely no doubt um, he is. And and well, another thing that I think maybe he's evolved some. And and I was listening to the to the post game shows from the Milwaukee stations after the game Saturday night because I was on such a high, and I think you were too. Mm-hmm. But they really they really talked about the players and especially Rogers were the importance of having what if there was only even nine thousand fans there. Um, yeah, that was, and it's almost like he's kind of bonded with the fan base more maybe yes. over the last year or two, and that was, I think, that was, you know, to, he said to run out of the tunnel and have fans there. And I sent you that little clip, but it, yep. was, it was a commercial break, so we didn't see it. It was during the two minute warning, and the eight thousand fans were chanting MVP, and he acknowledged them. Right, you know, there's a, there, it seems like there's a more of a, a bond there than maybe there has been in the past so it's been a heck of a season and i just i hope we can cap it off the right way it'll be disappointing if we don't right uh but it won't be my son and i have this argument all the time he's you know as you, when you're 17 you're really more black and white on stuff <laughs> so absolutely he tells me dad if we lose sunday it's a failure the season's a failure i'm like i would i would prefer the word disappointment but i don't <laughs> think the season's been a failure because no. it's been a whole heck of a lot of fun and they've been consistently really, really good. And if they get beat Sunday night, it's going to be they really do it to themselves, or, or Brady's just a little bit better. But, um, but I, I hope it's not a disappointment, but it's, it sure has been a fun season, that's for sure. I mean, every Sunday, you know, I go back. We go to a place called Benny's Pub here in Hagerstown. We haven't gone there for every game, but we've gone there for the majority of the games. It's a Packers bar. Um, Big Bill and Little Billy, who run it, father and son duo. They, uh, I think he, Billy had a little brother that passed away, and his name was Ben. So they just called. They, you know, wanted to start a Benny's Pub, and it's a Packers bar, and it's kind of cool as the season has evolved because it was a, it's a normal bar on a Sunday where the Dolphins fan comes in, the Titans fan comes in. As the Packers have been winning, there have been more Packer fans showing up, and then when there's a first down. It erupts. When there's a touchdown, it erupts. When there's a big stop, it erupts. So it's kind of cool to have that like camaraderie almost would be the right word. Um, because with COVID, you really haven't had any of that stuff. It's kind of cool yeah. to go someplace and enjoy that. Um, yeah. But you know, the other the other thing that you brought up about Aaron a little bit with the the fans, he said you run out of the tunnel, I think there was about 8,400 some, and some change there the other day, I think is what I read. And he said it sounded like fifty to 60,000. And, yeah. and I've been in the stadium, and they you know they do the stadium tour, and you stand in the one end zone seating section, and you yell, go, pack, go, and you hear it reverberate off the scoreboard on the other end, and it comes back to you, and it's even louder. And it's really cool how loud that place gets. I mean, I couldn't imagine being on the field with 80,000 going nuts. You know what I'm saying? But Aaron, 
I think the thing that he's done is there's that old saying, you know, you you never realize what you have until you lose it. And, you know, maybe Aaron, from a maturity perspective, when they drafted Jordan, said, I don't want to lose how special this place has been to me. And I think he's changed a lot from that, To, in my opinion. Now, I could be completely wrong, but he does seem closer with the fans and his teammates. I mean, he seems like an unbelievable teammate. They're having fun. Alan Lazard was on the Pat McAfee show the other day, and you know, they're asking, trying to dig questions out of him. And he's like, man, I'm not answering those questions. He yells at me enough when I drop passes. I'm not answering those questions. Right. But it's fun in his face. I I sent you that article that that, uh, Robert Tanyan wrote in the Players' Tribune. And uh, they just, they seem very, very tight. And and it's maybe not just this year. I mean, Tanyan references the last several years um, and account this issue of accountability. And um, so I think that's that's there for sure, and I that's why I'm, I I feel somewhat good about Sunday because I feel like they know what's in front of them. Yes. And uh, but you know again it's Brady, so you know I mean my son said to me the other day he said Dad if we, if we weren't you know if you're not a Packers or a Buccaneers fan how good is this I mean you know, just to sit and watch it. I mean, because you're, when you got a rooting interest, of course, you're going to be nervous as all get out. But he goes, if you're just a football fan, how, what more would you want Brady versus Rodgers in 24 degrees and snow for the right to go to the Super Bowl? Yes. Um, you know, so that is special, and you have to you have to take a step back to go, you know, that we're really fortunate to, to watch this, and, and I know I'm going to be nervous, but it'll be fun to watch. And, you know, Chad, what – blows me away is, you know, we haven't gone to the Super Bowl since 2010. I understand that. But, you know, this is our fourth NFC championship in the last seven years. Yes. So we've been pretty lucky. I know we haven't won, but we're pretty lucky. There's a, not a lot of teams playing on the last weekend in January. So, no, there's you know, not. And so it's, 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 good to be, it's good to be in that position for sure. Well, and we look, and I look back at them. I mean, last year we, you know, you know, I, <laughs> I coach and – I'm passionate when I'm on the sideline, and and I'm a little bit. When you saw me coach at Shenandoah, I'm a little different because there I was an assistant coach, and the rule was I had to keep my butt on the seat. Right? I mean, if you were to watch me coach a high school game, I'm up and down the sidelines, kind of like Tom Crean. I think the one North game, which is our rival, kind of like our Carolina, I walked like three and a half miles that game wow. in the box. Right? I'm just energetic. I felt sick when San Francisco beat our ass. I mean, I felt absolutely, like, sick. Like, Nolan, you know, talk about a failure. Like, I I felt like we failed that day. Like, I really, like, I looked at that game and I'm like, God, this is awful. Like, this was just disgusting to watch. And we come back this year and we're here again. You know, you're right, though. I mean, the Bills, you know, if you go back to whatever that 30 for 30 was on the Buffalo Bills, they made four Super Bowls in a row. Like, that doesn't happen. And for us to do four times in seven years is pretty awesome, and we are lucky. I mean, I'm looking up right now. It is 72 degrees and sunny in Tampa, Florida. And in Green Bay right now, it is a balmy 24. (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, I'm not a H. I work at a technical high school, right? Like, we have HVAC as one of the, the things here. So I asked the HVAC teacher. I said, hey, like, how cold can these things get? He goes, if it gets below 50, you're getting ready to break some compressors. You can't make it cold enough to emulate how cold it's going to be at 3.05 on Sunday. 
Right. You just can't do right. it. And no, I agree. the fact that they're now calling for snow, a possible one to two inches of snow on Sunday during the game, that that in itself just, yeah, Brady's played in snow. My brother and I have argued about that, and I'm sure Friday when he comes and we'll argue about it again. Um, that's one dude. You're, you're talking about putting 30-plus guys out there that get reps in between different spots to play in the snow, and we do it every day. And they practice outside. You know, LaFleur yeah. has decided to take and I, advantage I, I, of I that. also think it's a psychological thing, too. Yeah. You know, I, I, think that, I think that they might be able to handle them playing it just fine. But there's still that psychological thing of, oh, well, Green Bay's used to this. And then on the flip side, I think the Packers are like, hey, this is our, this is what we want. Like yeah. there's this like, like psychological edge. So hopefully that plays into it as well. Yeah, we'll I, I totally agree. Um, yeah, we'll see. One, two things I'm gonna throw at you real quick before we hop off of here. Breaking news: while we were on the show today, Philip Rivers has retired. Yeah, you know, a really good quarterback. He was a really um, good I've quarterback. Always watched him. I've always loved watching him play. A lot of people don't like him because of his trash talk. I've always thought it was somewhat entertaining. You never, you never got the, you know, you always got his best. Um, you know, I don't think he gets enough credit probably for being the type of quarterback uh, that he that he was over his career. Um, I've always kind of liked him off the field. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a, you know, he's got 15 million kids. Um, he's a, I'm joking when I say that, but he and his wife have a lot of kids. He's a strong, and I'm a, I'm a Catholic. He's a strong Catholic guy. Yes, he is. Um, so I've always liked him off the field. Uh, so yeah, I mean, hats off to him. An incredible, incredible career for that guy. Yeah, 17 years. And, uh, you know, the, the thing that I like the, I guess the most about that is he's going out on his terms. You know, I hate to right. see when the guys have unbelievable careers. Me through for 63,000 yards. When you go out on somebody else's terms, it kind of stinks. You know, it's always, when you do that, you burn the right to go out on your terms. Um, I wanted to bring that up. One thing that we talked about during March Madness, I took a note down, and I do believe this is true, and I want to get your opinion on it with Coach K. Coach K made a comment it might have been five or six years ago now in a media session with regards to he it was when they wanted to expand the NCAA tournament even more than what it already was and he made this comment to the to the press he said don't ruin what is good for two and a half weeks the entire country comes together to watch one event which is March Madness and the entire country seems to be in an unbelievably good mood during those two and a half weeks don't screw it up how do you feel about that comment? Do you remember him making that statement? I do. Yeah. Now, to be fair, I mean, he did argue with the COVID thing. He actually argued for expansion, but that's a, I think that's a whole separate deal. Mm-hmm. But um, I do remember. Yeah. No, I do remember that quote, and I think he's right. Again, you know, don't screw it up, and don't. You're, I think you're. I told you earlier in the conversation. The best two days of this. I mean, I don't care. They're the best two sports days ever. Forget the Super Bowl. Forget bowl games. Forget all that stuff. That Thursday and Friday, the tournament are just fantastic and everybody is in a good mood there is and so i hope once we get out of this covid stuff we go back to the you know all across the country you know games on from noon to midnight and uh absolutely i hope it stays absolutely the same yeah i i do too um i know you're a busy guy down at school i know school's kind of probably you know covid has probably not been the easiest thing to navigate with regards to advancement um but I really wanted to have you on, and, and, and it was an honor to have you on. I, you know, it's even more of an honor to call you a close friend and a good friend, and I appreciate you being that to me. Um, 
I look well, forward. I appreciate, I appreciate that, Chad. I really, I mean, of course, you know how I feel about you and, and our friendship. And it's been an honor to know your family, get to know your family. And uh, so this has been fun for me. And, you know, you don't, I'll, I'll be happy to always jump back on at a later time. But it's been a lot of fun to have this conversation. So really, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I want to have you back on. Um, I know we'll look at some schedules. I really would, I haven't really honestly pulled up the basketball schedules because I've, I've kind of been stuck in, uh, in, Wisconsin a little bit with my mind here on looking different things up but when we get close to the Duke Carolina game I'd love to have you back on and we can kind of talk about the ins and outs of that especially through the experience of somebody that lived it sure that'd be great that'd be a lot of fun okay cool well uh you know Greeley I really appreciate your time today I uh, look forward to our text as we get closer to Sunday and obviously through that but I uh, hopefully you have a good rest of your week I will thanks Chad. Have thank a good you one. you too see ya never in my wildest dreams podcast begins in Three, two, one. Absolutely love having Greeley on the show. He is a, uh, like I said, he's a really good friend of mine. He's a great guy. He knows sports. He's been around the block a little bit. We text back and forth about a lot of different things. And even when we're not, you know, talking sports, we're able to talk life and family and stuff like that. And it's uh, it's always a good conversation. Looking forward to my next guest. And Nima Omidvar will be on when we get back. Never in my wildest dreams podcast begins in... Three, two, one. Welcome back to Never My Wildest Dream podcast. Looking forward to my next guest, Nima Omidvar. Nima has been all over the globe with regards to basketball. He is a guy that I met in 2011, 2012 to actually, you know, get, become friends with him. And uh, he's got some awesome stories. He's also got some awesome news that he's going to be working on as well. And I'm looking forward to breaking that here today. But Nima was a graduate of 2008 from the University of Maryland. His next job that he started after that was at UNC Charlotte with Coach Lutz. He uh, started working at Bowie State, and we're, I want to do want to touch base on some Bowie State stuff with Nima. He was there, and uh, then he went to NC State. He went to the University of Maryland. He went to South Alabama, which I just explained to him is where Jimmy Buffett's from. Mobile is like his his original area. So uh, we're going to have a little bit of fun with that. And his last stop was the GW. Nima, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Hey, Chad. Thanks a lot for having me. Love the name of your show um, because, you know, I, I've got some wild and crazy dreams and I want to achieve all of them. Um, excited to talk about some of them and, and talk about my journey and our friendship. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to this and have been since I started the show and I texted you. Um so, you know, I'm going to get this out of the way real quick. It's it's 11.20. Uh, the inauguration is going to start at about noon, if I'm not mistaken. How close are you to that? I'm, I'm uh, if I open my balcony door, I can hear them. I actually have it on mute uh, on my TV. Uh, President-elect, soon to be sworn in, President Biden, yep. uh, just walked in. Um, you know, ironically, I'm a, I'm a huge history nerd growing up. Uh, especially with politics and presidents, um, you know, I, I would read up on on them, and I would go to every inauguration. Um, when I was in college, when Obama was inaugurated, I rented out my my one bedroom uh, in my uh, five bedroom home uh, on Craigslist when Craigslist was first out, and I, I paid off to a month and a half of rent uh, just on that one day. Um, but I was there for the inauguration. I actually did. Uh, go to the last inauguration as well, the Trump's inauguration, because um, you know I, I like to to experience it. When I was 
uh, house hunting uh, seven, eight years ago when I bought the place where I'm at now. I'm on Pennsylvania Avenue. If I step out my, my door uh, and go about seven steps into the street, which isn't smart, but if you do that, you're <laughs> staring right at the Capitol building. Um, and uh, so I'm very, very close. And, uh, you know, it's a bizarre time down here in the city because um, it is very different. Uh, I, you know, the protests in, in D.C. are highly organized. Um, they they concentrate them to specific areas. Um, and, you know, they're, they're generally very safe because you have to do some sort of check-in uh, process to, to go into that area. Um, so it's rarely a point of contention or concern um, when the uh, riots and insurrection occurred a couple of weeks ago. I was actually headed down to, to Gold's Gym, which is across the street from the Capitol, uh, less than a mile from my apartment. And um, I had no idea what was going on. I used to see a wave of people in the middle of the street, and, uh, took a legal U-turn and got the heck out of there. Um, but ever since then, it's it's been really eerie um, because, uh, you know, the, the roads are blocked. So if I do want to go work out now, I have to go walk. Um, so I took the walk the last couple of days to the gym and I'm walking essentially in a, in a war zone. I mean, right. It's elaborate, uh, sturdy fences. It's uh, soldiers with um, weaponry. Uh, you know, military-grade vehicles. It's it's really uh, a surreal thing to see, and um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping uh, today is uh, going to be a, a moment of, of uh, healing and unity for the country, and, and one of safety. And uh, hopefully, I, I can't imagine anything. Uh, knock on wood, anything malicious would happen today. It, this is a very very safe city currently, right now. Uh, it just the, the presence is um, pretty uh, spectacular. You know, you know, you you said a couple things there as I take notes while we're talking. I'm going to hit on the first one. So here, here's my recruiting story while I was down in D.C. You talked about an illegal U-turn. So I was driving down there while I was at HCC to recruit a kid at Theodore Roosevelt High School. I can't remember where they were playing. Yeah, the kid's name was Devin Gallman. So. I can't remember where it was, but it was like on the second or third floor of this this school was this gymnasium. So I'm going down I Street mm-hmm. and didn't realize that there's a difference between EYE and the letter I Street. And I made a right. And look, it's like 345, 4 o'clock. Because you know some of them games are played really early down there. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'm driving square at traffic. Like, oh shit moment. So I pull over on the right-hand side of the road and, like, parallel park between two cars facing the opposite direction. I kind of felt like Chevy Chase and, you know, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation under the truck because I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to get out of here? I'm in an HCC school car. It was like I was praying to anybody and everybody that I'd make it out of there with no issues. But uh, that's my U-turn story. Uh, that, that was I was scared to death being that close to everything. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to get run over by these cars coming right at me. So I know what you're talking about. That's, that's one of the uh, great natural uh, barriers uh, to recruiting the most fertile basketball region in the nation. And a lot of folks, when they come down here, they get lost, they get overwhelmed. Um, and then there will be players like at a Theodore Roosevelt 
where you know Coach Nickens has had some really good dudes. Yep. Um, but you know what? A lot of a lot of coaches don't don't go down uh, to check on the Rough Riders just because of you know where they perceive you know the, the town uh, or that part of town to be, whether or not they they, they want to be around or not. Which uh, what a what a short sighted way of, of looking at things towards our business. But uh, I'm I'm happy for them to to move out of the way and, and make it easier for. Uh, for us to, to recruit those talented student athletes. Well, you know the Milk House. People don't really understand the Milk House. You gotta you gotta experience the Milk House if you're gonna go and get born some there, baby. That's where the champions come from. Exactly. And Nickens does a great job. Every once in a while, Rob and I'll chat. Like he'll hit me up and be like, "What's up, champ? How we doing?" So it's it's always good to catch up with Rob. He does an unbelievable job down there. You uh, you said you were a businessman, and and I'm gonna hit on this. You. You rented your apartment out for the inauguration. You paid a month and a half's worth of rent. Is that how you kind of got to, you know, have you been kind of a businessman your whole life? I know you ran AAU tournaments. Yeah. I know you have. I know yeah. we're going to put some breaking news on the air today about the next venture that you're going into. Um, explain a little bit about how you become a businessman and how it's transformed your career with regards to coaching as well as business. Yeah, that's uh, you know, it's a it's a good question, and I've I've never been asked it, but I'm I'm really proud of it. So, you know, when I was in high school, even um, I was a uh, an entrepreneur. I was you know selling CDs, um, you know, back when you know bootlegging CDs was a brand new concept. Um, I got a, a DVD burn or a CD burner, um, and I would you know sell CDs. I wanted to have music. I lived in Boyd's, Maryland. From Boyd's to Damascus on the school bus is about 30-plus minutes. Um, so you better have some good music in your headphones in the mornings like all the other kids. Well, I always wanted to have all the new stuff. So I figured, okay, if I could if I could buy a CD from Walmart, which was generally, you know, 11 to $13, um, and I sell for $5, three copies of it, I've made a profit. And now I've got that CD, and I... Uh, accumulated a, a glorious CD collection and um, even had uh, membership cards to my uh, CD uh, sell, selling company. I had teachers and the school security guard even, you know, would come for Christmas and buy CDs from me and uh, created an, an industry. Um, then when I got to, to college, uh, you know, I, I went to Frederick Community College, was on scholarship, but then decided, you know, I want to coach. And so I left uh, to pursue coaching. Well, you know, the deal was since I was going to walk away from free education, I had to pay for my education. Um, and because I wanted to be in basketball, and at that time I was coaching, um, I had gone to a couple AAU tournaments. I noticed and observed some inefficiencies in running these uh, events and, you know, thought to myself, I could, I could do this um, and probably do it better than, than what I'm seeing. Uh, and so I just woke up one morning and said, the hell with it, I'm going to do it. Here we go. And uh, came up with the tournament name, DC Metro Showcase, came up with a, uh, a concept of, of, you know, what is the, the, the target uh, group that we want to serve, which at the time was unsigned seniors. Um, and grew that event uh, to be a, a, a large, um, you know, entity that had no less than 60 teams participating each time and that helped pay for all my college education, that helped pay for my rent. 
Um, you know, you get to inauguration time, it's it's pretty removed from uh, AAU tournaments. So I was maybe running out a little bit of money, which is what encouraged me to be, uh, you know, resourceful on that day. But, you know, you, you're in college, you sleep on a, on a couch uh, for one night, somebody pays you 600 bucks to, to have your bed to, to go to the inauguration. Pretty good deal. I'll take it. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I've, I've always done that when I was in, in school. Um, I was an economics major. Um, and part of the reason why I, I wanted to be an economics major was, you know, I, in my mind, I, uh, you know, thought, you know, hey, I, I can do business. I can understand hustling. And I associated business and hustling with, you know, a business major. So I, I want to know the theory behind uh, what can make money and create industry. And at the time, I, I didn't necessarily assume that I was going to be a college basketball coach. Um, but, uh, you know, here we are. I, uh, you know, I, I studied uh, all sorts of business and industry and, and studied a lot of successful entrepreneurs. And one of the common uh, things that always come up is just, you know, uh, believing in yourself, believing in your idea and, and just chasing after it, uh, which is, you know, now what I'm what I'm doing, I've I've kind of come full circle and, and done the exact same thing. Have seen college basketball events, um, seen inefficiencies within college basketball events, ways that um, I could do something better, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to to create that with Aruba Ball, which is uh, going to be a college MTE multiple team event um, in Aruba. Uh, November of 2021 and, and every year after that. So, um, you know, we'll see, we'll see where that goes, but, you know, it's a pretty exciting proposition to, to potentially uh, be able to create uh, business and opportunity and, and a, a livelihood off of just one week, week's worth of work. Um, so we'll, we'll see where that goes. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Uh, to utilize my experiences and my knowledge and, and what I've seen uh, in my 12 years of college basketball and, and translate it to uh, what could hopefully be a very successful event and a destination for men's and women's college teams. No, that's awesome. Where do you have a, <clears throat> a have you been down to Aruba to figure out kind of the, the layout of everything? And if so, where are you going to have them stay? Uh, I have not been down there yet. You know, I um, kind of came across uh, going to Aruba, just uh, you know, just like anything else we, we normally do in basketball, you, you go through contacts. Aruba is a Aruba is a is a Dutch um, province, and um, I've got some great contacts in Holland. Um, they you know kind of sparked the idea. Um, they're a little bit outside of the Caribbean. There's some players that are involved in business and basketball within the Caribbean that have got a monopoly, and um, so I started to say, well, if I want to do something in the Caribbean, but it's kind of out of the Caribbean, maybe I can go to Aruba. And we just um, started utilizing contacts. And, and, and through those contacts, um, you know, it's going to culminate to, I'm, I'm actually going to be going down to Aruba on, uh, in a couple of weeks. We're, we're, we're on the 20th of January, February 8th. I'm going to go down there for um, three weeks and, and meet with all of the uh, business owners in Aruba and, and, and their the government leaders to to hopefully curate this event. We got a lot to, to still kind of work through, and obviously, COVID is still a concern. Um, but uh, you 
know, if we can if we can overcome those obstacles, uh, which I expect we will, we're going to create a, a brand new event called Aruba Ball, and uh, it's going to be you know an exciting opportunity for four men's teams and four women's teams to travel to uh, one of the most beautiful destinations in the world to play some hoops. We'll be we'll be doing it at the Renaissance Hotel, okay, uh, which is attached to the convention center. Um, the convention center actually belongs to the Renaissance, but they just call it the Aruba Convention Center. Um, and uh, that's where we'll be uh, doing the event, bringing the basketball court in um, and, uh, you know, creating a, a, a you know, arena style setup, um, which, you know, when you walk right outside the doors and you're, you're on the voted the third most beautiful beach in the world. Um, so that's pretty, uh, it's pretty exciting uh, to do that. And, um, you know, it, it, it's a it's a proposition that as as I talk to the folks on the island of Aruba, they're they're in, excited about the, the concept of, of really doing something that's never been done, um, and uh, you know, really bringing some some good positive business to the island. You know, I was fortunate enough to play after Shenandoah went down and played in Barbados and down in the Caribbean, and uh, it, it, there's nothing like it. Then that's why I asked because. Last time I was in Aruba, it was um, the Marriott is where I was at. And uh, it's a gorgeous island. I'm going to throw a question at you real quick, though. Did you know that Aruba is a desert? I did not know that. It is a desert island. Aruba is actually a desert in the middle of water. Yep. How about it? Okay. Learn, learn, see a little bit of history stuff. You learn a little bit of stuff as we go through this as well. Just you like taught I'm me a couple of things already, man. You taught me <laughs> some, some stuff before we got on with, uh, with you know, Buffett and and his, his mobile roots, which I had no idea. I'm ashamed that I don't know that. You lived down um, on the beach for a whole year, and you were hanging out at Buffett's Beach, man. <laughs> I, I was, man. I was in the, you know, the, my, what I, I learned this line from a used car salesman, literally, that I met um, down at Brickyard. Brickyard was my go-to bar in, uh, in Mobile, where they played live music. And every night I'd go sit there and listen to some great live music. Um, which is, is even more of a tragedy that I didn't know uh, Jimmy Buffett was from there. But I asked the gentleman next to me one time, who was originally from Michigan, and uh, you know, he and I were talking about living in Mobile. He said, I'll never leave here. I love it here. I said, why do you love me here so much? And he looked at me and said, well, who wouldn't love to live in the northernmost point of the Caribbean? And I just started dying laughing. I said, man, I have to be able to steal that line. He said, it's all yours, brother. Take it. And uh, <laughs> you know, from there on out, we, we started uh, you know, marketing our location, which is true. It is the northernmost point of the Caribbean. If you look on the map, it's in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, there's no northern more point, northern more point than that uh, that touches uh, the Gulf, which touches the Caribbean. So... Um, you know, things, things like that are, are, are you know, exciting uh, marketing opportunities for me. So even when you mentioned you know, Aruba being a desert, now now I want to explore that a little bit more um, and, and how we can maybe utilize that to market it. I do know it's going to be beautiful weather every single day over there, 80 degrees. I mean, it's the most consistent weather report you've ever seen. Every day it's 80 degrees, 75 is the low. Um, and... Uh, you know, I like that. I like that a lot. And I also like the fact that there's no hurricanes there. That's that's going to, you know, aid um, just the uh, peace of mind in terms of safety uh, for teams that want to come travel. You know, I played an event in the Bahamas um, and two weeks prior to 
uh, uh, going down there, a hurricane comes through and, and really uh, hurts hurts the island, and that's something that um, you know is a is a nerve wracking experience when you start thinking about you know as a college basketball coach. I got I, you know one yes you want folks down there to be safe, but um, you know I've got my team to, to run and. Now all of a sudden a hurricane just happened. Are games canceled? Are they not? You know that's a that's a that's an overwhelming proposition at times. So, um, you know I'm I'm really excited about what we're what we're doing down there. Um, looking forward to see what happens. You know it's funny you brought up the D, the uh, CDs. So I'm in college at Shenandoah University, and I was a movie dude. So when I tell you this story, you're going to laugh a little bit. Remember when Walmart. At midnight on Monday, going into Tuesday, would start opening their like DVDs that they would restock the shelves with. Do you that's remember right. that? Right. That, that's always the, the DVDs and CDs would always come out on on Tuesdays. Yep, they came um, out Tuesdays. So, so Monday at like midnight, they'd always pop them. So I became kind of an entrepreneur in the fact that I would I was like Redbox before Redbox. So I would rent movies out of my collection to people within the dorm, and I had a little whiteboard, you know, Nima got out, Bad Boys 2. And then I would take that money and go buy a new DVD every Tuesday and start adding it to the collection. The new DVD would be like $2 a night instead of a dollar a night. So I was actually able to build my DVD collection up from that. I did it right on my dorm room. So you made me think of that when you brought up the CD. I was like, oh, I've done something like that before. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. Um you know, one thing I've, I've, I've noticed about, you know, your career is you've been well-respected every place that you went, and you do a lot of it through interactions with people and communication. You're really good at communication. Where do you attest that to? Did you learn that from college? Did you learn that working for guys like Coach Lutz and Coach Turgeon and Coach, um, oh, shoot, the guy you work for down at NC State? Did you learn yeah, it from Coach those? Godfrey. That's what that's it, Mark Godfrey. Do you learn it from kind of those guys and the guys you worked with around there? Where do you attest your communication skills to? Uh, that's a that's a great question. So, Chad, when I was a high school coach, um, it was a couple layers of of me really realizing the importance of communication. I was, um, you know, when I was coaching high school in AAU, I was eighteen years old, all the way till about twenty two years old. Um, now. A lot of college coaches had no idea how old I was. I, I was very deliberate to not, you know, walk around saying, "Hey, I'm 20 years old," um, because I wanted to be respected. I didn't think uh, at that age I could, I would be respected, but I did notice who would communicate back with me, who would, uh, you know, give me respectful communication, um, and who wouldn't. And uh, I made mental note of that, and, and just you know how folks would treat me. And uh, I, I just always made a, a conscious effort to. And I want to be um, treated. As, uh, I want to treat others as, as I would like to be treated. Um, and part of my communication methodology is not always just to be nice. You know, like I'm going to be honest. I'm going to tell you exactly what um, you know. You probably need to hear. And so uh, I, I kind of liken that to you know. I'm going to jump around a little bit, but a lot of coaches will ask me advice. They'll look at my path and see I started as a JV basketball coach at the Jewish Day School and had an opportunity to coach in the ACC, Big Ten, and the NCAA tournament. Well, how do you go from here to there? Well, um, sometimes I give them a dose of reality, like, you know, 
whatever that may be to that specific situation. It might not be the story that they wanted to hear, but that's what they need to hear. It's the truth. So I've always been um, uh, appreciative and uh, valued coaches that one, you know, gave me time to, to, to give me some sort of advice and guidance, but gave me uh, truth and uh, for lack of a better word, didn't give me the bullshit. Um, now my communication improved um, as, you know, when I got to Paul the six, um, I was tasked with marketing um, our program and getting us on the map. Paul the six had never won a Virginia uh, independence uh, school championship, state championship, and never won a WCAC championship. Quite frankly, we were in, in one of the better leagues in the country and we were an unknown team. So it was our job and our task to, to change that. And we did just off of communication. We, my strategy, our strategy, Coach Brown's strategy was, well, let's get college coaches in here first. We get kids placed in the colleges. People will notice that. And then we will, you know, ultimately uh, attract better talent here to Paul the Six. And it will all kind of fall into place. And uh, that's what we did. Our first year, all my communication was, was geared towards getting college coaches into our gyms. Um, and then all the while still concurrently recruiting uh, kids in the area and families in the area. Uh, and, and while doing that, you kind of learn, uh, you know, some, some do's and don'ts on how to communicate. You learn, um, you know, what college coaches want to hear uh, that will help kind of spur them to, to get into the gym or maybe what doesn't work and when they don't show up to the gym, which is maybe equally as important. Mm-hmm. And then conversely, what works with families that you're recruiting or what maybe doesn't work. Um, you know, coaching at the high school level, uh, but at a competitive level. Uh, level on the high school side where recruiting still comes into into play um, and recruiting high level student athletes, kids that ultimately go on to play in the NBA and at the highest level of college basketball, it's still uh, a competitive uh, recruitment. Um, it's it's very similar to recruiting in the ACC or the, the Big Ten. And uh, so you learn um, how to be an effective communicator and you the biggest thing I learned is just being genuine and being real. Uh, people can, can smell, uh, you know, your, your fakeness from a mile away. Um, and if you're, if you're a phony or a fraud, then, you know, this, again, that's going to come out, and, uh, expose you. So if you can be genuine, you can, uh, you know, tell a story and, and share a vision and share a message effectively. People will be willing to listen, uh, to your vision and to your message. So it, it started while I was coaching at, Paul the six um, at UNC Charlotte as a grad assistant, I had total green light to really do the exact same thing. That's actually how I became a grad assistant. Uh, they would uh, communicate and, and correspond with my emails. I built a relationship with Rob Moxley. I built a relationship with coach Lutz and Chris Cheeks and Bobby Coomer and Rob Perrin, the, uh, uh, the Dobo. And because I independently grew relationships with all of them when an opportunity arose and my name came up it was unanimous everyone in the office said oh we love that guy let's hire him um so you know that got me there i learned again some some do's and don'ts on on how to uh communicate and brand a college basketball program um at unc charlotte uh kind of took it uh another step at Bowie state where we were top 10 in the country Mm -hmm. and before i got there we were 
not top ten in the country, but it, it's like the tree in the woods. If nobody is in the woods to hear it fall down, did it, did it fall down? Like if we're top ten in the nation and every basketball uh, person in the country doesn't know about it, then are you, you know, what's the point of being top ten? So how can we effectively communicate and, and market the fact that um, we are an elite Division two basketball program um, and you know, just like everything, you learn the do's and don'ts. And when Mark Gottfried, who is uh, doing ESPN at the time and doesn't have a Division II game on his radar, catches wind that, uh, oh, that guy that I met when I was doing TV at UNC Charlotte is, um, you know, got a top 10 team. That's pretty cool. Right. You caught their attention. You're, you're occupying their thinking space, which is something that I've um, always used that term. Uh, kind of going through uh, my time in recruiting and in marketing and branding. I want all the basketball world to be thinking about us and our program. And if, and if I can get you to think about us once or twice a day, I think we're going to be pretty effective. And then Coach Godfrey, to, to kind of wrap it all up, really taught me um, a, a ton of effective communication strategies. He actually um, – you know, it's, it, it, some of these memories are coming back, and I'm I, I'm going to send him a text to thank him for this. Coach Godfrey would, would pay for me to go to uh, different seminars and educational experiences that were outside of basketball that helped me be an effective communicator and an effective marketer and, and, and branding uh, person for our program, which is uh, you know one of my primary responsibilities uh, that he wanted me to do. So. Uh, he he invested in me uh, to become better at that, mm-hmm. and then you know my next opportunity was at the University of Maryland, where we were able to market and brand our program with uh, hashtag We Will, which became our team slogan, which is now Under Armour's. Uh, that's Under Armour's official campaign. Um, uh, you know, on social media is is We Will, and then the Running Man Challenge as well. So the, these type of Branding strategies have um, kind of been really important to me, um, but it all stems back with just being an effective and genuine communicator. So, um, you know, if someone has got my phone number, it means they probably got it from someone that I know, which is someone that's probably important to me, um, or, uh, you know, we can add value to one another. So if someone's going to take the time to communicate with me, I want to be uh, equally receptive uh, to, uh, you know, and, and uh, respectful of their time, and and give them equal due and communication back. You know, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but so I was at ACC from 2010 to 2011. 11, 12, and 12, 13. We had three really successful years where I was there. I was in charge of recruiting at that time, and. You know, I feel like I brought some really good dudes in, but I want to say that you started recruiting Najee and Meter in 2011. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was 20, 
Maybe it was 2011, 2010, 2011. That's not good when you can't remember the years. We're not. <laughs> that means that means we're really looking back on a career. We we we've done a lot. <laughs> I don't like that. I used to be able to recall that time and stuff with no problem, but now they're all coming together. But yeah, it was about about that time. So I want to say it was the 2010, 2011 season. My first season, I started getting on the road a little bit and recruiting. But I watched you from a distance, and I've never really told you this story. And it's kind of cool that I have the ability to now. So I watched how you operated, how how you texted how you communicated, and as you 2011-2012 season came around, you were able to recruit those guys to get them come down to Bowie. I remember you know, us setting up the recruitment trip down to Bowie and uh, how that was going to be successful. You were convinced way before you even picked them up how, how that weekend was going to go. And uh, I knew the ins and outs of the weekend, which I appreciated. But I've never told anybody this, but I learned how to recruit from you. I kind of got like a wow. swag with it because – I could tell from a distance how you did things, and I was like, this cat gets guys, and I've got to go get guys. And I really took a lot on what you did and put it into my own Chad realm of how I was going to recruit. So I do appreciate you being able to help my college career as a coach because I was able to take that kind of swagger that you had and put it with me so I could become successful as well. That's that's, um, a really humbling thing to hear. And I appreciate that so much. Uh, you know, the I think in, in recruiting, it, it's so crucial that um, you be yourself, uh, but uh, you you be a, you, you separate yourself from the pack. You know, when I came to recruit um, Najee Meter, it was really on accident. I came the very, I remember it vividly. I came the first day of fall recruiting in September, mm-hmm. and. Um, the workouts that I was I was hoping to go see uh, were mostly later in the week, and it was the first day. I'm thinking, well, it's the first day of recruiting, and we're actually off, so I shouldn't just be sitting around in the office. And I'm now a college assistant coach on the road, something that I've wanted to be for the last six years. Um, well, I'm going to go somewhere, and I thought, you know what? I got to hit every Maryland JUCO. Um, I, you know, wherever I've been, I've always thought it'd be important to, even if I'm not recruiting kids from a particular uh, school, to at least step foot in their building um, or make sure I see them once throughout the season at a game live so that I can say to you, hey, Chad, I, ca- I came to, to watch you guys, not to recruit, but to support and so, you know, Hagerstown Community College has got a great uh, reputation within Maryland JUCO. I went to Frederick Community College, so I, I understood, you know, the, the, the level and the value and where you guys stood within our state, Bowie State being in the state of Maryland. You know, our, our requirements to, to recruit there were pretty simple. We were going to really only recruit in-state kids. And ironically, both of those kids were out-of-state kids. But we were going to recruit in-state kids um, that could qualify for Pell so that we could offset some of the, the scholarship uh, you know obstacles that we had because we only had full four four full scholarships uh, to, to build out our team. And so you know I'd say, you know what, I'll check this off the list. Hey, it sounds kind of far. Let me just go up there day one. They're doing a workout pretty early in the afternoon. I could pop over to Goretti. I could pop over to a couple other places after and um, get that checked off the list. And I remember coming in 
um, and not having an open mind. And, and this was a, a great lesson for me. Don't ever assume, uh, you know, what you may or may not see in a gym. Just go in there with an open mind and give all those kids a chance. I was really just coming in there to just say hello, meet you, meet, meet Coach Brown, yep. um, met Coach Fitzgerald in, in academics, you know, just kind of meeting everyone and uh, just making friends, like I would like to say. Hey, man, I don't mean to recruit you guys. I just want to make friends. And within two minutes, I'm like, who the hell are these two guys? Um <laughs> And I was like, well, damn, I got to recruit these dudes. And so now you get into problem-solving mode. A lot of recruiting to me is problem-solving. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the primary problem, and you know, not problem in the sense of bad, but thing that I had to solve with Najee and Meter was they were out-of-state kids, and could we afford to give them full scholarships because they were mid- to high-major Division One players that academically um, – I thought and, and projected, okay, they may not make it to where they need to be academically. And uh, both of those kids have gotten their degrees, love mm-hmm. them to death. Yep. Um, but they were in different places academically at that time. And uh, that's when you go to junior college at, at, you know, at, at times. And so the challenge was I have from September until May when uh, these kids will probably make their decision because Division Two, you're, you're probably not committing in early period and probably not committing in April. So I knew my timeline. I got until May to figure out a way to get these kids to become Marylanders so we can save more than half on the scholarship bill and we can build a team. It's just like salary cap. Um, and uh, that was a that was a fun process um, that I that I embarked on with those kids. You guys had them in, in apartments off campus. Right. They had leases to be in their apartments. Mm-hmm. And so within that year, I convinced them, hey, you guys should get uh, driver's licenses in Maryland, become you know Maryland residents, yep. do taxes in Maryland because you guys worked the camp uh, up there, and uh, now you're uh, in state. And so uh, they did all that. Um, and uh, committed to Bowie State. They both won uh, and, and were big pieces in the CIAA championship team that their first year, their junior year at Bowie State. Uh, and and I also remember this, and this is a, you know, I don't know if this is a good or bad thing, but uh, I, I, me and Coach Brooks laugh about it. The first time I took Coach Brooks to watch those guys play was in a game. Uh, Najee gets, te- no, Meter gets teed up. Najee's playing terrible, and Coach Brooks looks at me and is like, why the hell do you have me here? I'm leaving. (laughs) I'm like, Coach, I'm just telling you, like, stick it out. And, uh, you know, he warms up to him a little bit. He's like, okay, by the end of the game, he's like, okay, we're not getting these guys. They're way too good. So, like, either way, stop wasting the time. And, uh, you know, a lot of times as head coaches, and I hope uh, one day – if I'm a head coach, I, I remember this lesson. You get blinded by your your initial reaction, and sometimes you don't necessarily listen to your assistants who have done a lot of the legwork and a lot of the um, you know the, the, the digging up, if you will, of the scenario. And I knew with both of those kids that we were going to have a great opportunity. Both of their families loved the idea of them going to an HBCU mm-hmm. check. Yep. Academically, they were they were both uh, you know struggling a little bit. They needed a smaller school setting, 
um, and it was very likely that they would need to go Division Two. Check. They wanted to to play for a winner. We were that. Check. Um, and I just knew based on Maryland JUCO, uh, we did. We had a four to five month head start, which which paid off uh, at the end because our relationship that we built and the trust that we built, um, you know, superseded any of the other uh, opportunities that that presented themselves. And then, to, to be quite frank, the trust that we built uh, with those kids helped uh, helped us when. Um, you know, I never even got a chance to coach him. I got an opportunity to coach at NC State, and you know, those guys were like, "Man, coach, you gotta go. You gotta go do that." Like, we're we're happy for you, and we're happy to be here at Bowie State. Don't worry about us. We're, we're committed here. Uh, we trust Coach Brooks. We trust the rest of the staff, uh, and we're happy for you. Uh, and I think that's a that's a that's a great feeling in recruiting when you know you sell the institution. It's more about the institution than you as the assistant coach. Um, but when we get down to it, if something changes, now we're, we're going to stay committed to that institution because uh, that's what was properly sold. Mm-hmm. And we're happy for everyone when they go pursue uh, a different opportunity. Um, it all, it all kind of worked out that way. You know, <clears throat> you said a couple of things there that make me completely laugh that I forgot about. But now, like when you juggle my mind a little bit, so the way you made those two eligible to fit in your little world with regards to like the lease, the ID, all that stuff. So that that following fall, we took all the guys and got voter cards. <laughs> and they all became in-county citizens on the roster. Perfect. So that Perfect. the second semester of that year, they would be considered in-county. It was harder to do, like, first part, you know what I'm saying? But the yeah, second semester, yeah. we could get that in-county rate. And you used the word salary cap. It was like playing with a salary cap. Like, okay, I'm going to have to give this much to this kid because he's going to get this much Pell to make this happen. And that's what we would do. But we stole that idea from you on how we could get that done, and we definitely did that. The other thing I remember you doing is when you walked in the gym, it might have been February, end of February, early part of March, you had on your ring. And you said that time of year you always wear your ring to show what you're playing for. Yeah, yeah. I um, so I had my Paul the Sixth State Championship ring. That's a damn good memory. I can't yeah, believe you remember yeah, that. Yes, I was actually did. talking about this with with a friend of mine. That's that's the only championship ring I had. I've been in some some great schools and we've won some championships, but. Uh, you know, some of the schools are like, "Hey, look, you got to win an national championship to get a ring." Anyway, that's the only ring I had, and my shtick was, um, I would keep the ring in my pocket, and I would tell these these guys, "Look, man, we're gonna win so many rings. I'm not gonna have enough fingers to to put these uh, rings on. I'm just gonna keep them in my pocket." They thought that was funny. Looking back, I, it's super cheesy line, but you know that became our our thing. Anytime I'd uh, come see those guys. I pull the ring out of my, my pocket, flip it to them. Uh, they laugh as they catch it and bobble it, like, oh, coach, don't throw that thing. Like, it might get messed up. Like, no, nah, man, that's all good. And, um, you know, the the last time I came up there, I, I do believe it was, um, now, and this would have been closer to uh, the, the end of the, the signing period mm-hmm. because I did come on the, on the very last day. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I got to, I got to bookend this thing. Okay, at this point, we're in a full fledged recruiting battle with, you know, 
every Division Two and multiple Division Ones who were trying to convince the, the guys that if they went to summer school and found a way to pay for summer school, that they can go Division One. Right. Um, and you know, I said, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna show up in person again um, and and occupy their thinking space and make sure that towards the end of this process they're thinking about Bowie State. And, uh, you know, I did. And, you know, it's, it's one thing to, to make a phone call, uh, but if you really want uh, to, to build trust and build a relationship, being in person, face to face, is nothing better. And uh, I actually played those guys in a horse and beat them. Made a behind the back half court shot swish uh, in a horse. Uh, and I told those guys, if I beat you guys in a horse, you, you guys are committing. Um, and uh, the, the rest of your team was there watching. Yep, they were I remember dying that. laughing yep. uh, when I switched that last shot. And ironically, I was a GA. I was a GA at UNC Charlotte with a guy named Matt Riders, now coaching. He's an AD in Chicago. And Matt would shoot this behind the back half court shot every day in practice. And he would make it with pretty good efficiency. I would try the shot. I never made it once. And then every day in practice at Bowie State before we started, we start in the circle, we'd have our little talk. And then before we break off guards and forwards, I'd do a behind-the-back half-court shot, and I never made it once, not one time. And that was like this thing our guys would just laugh at me. Like, Coach, you keep trying it. You're never going to make it. And here we are in, a, in an important horse game, the most important horse game of my life. I ended the game with the behind-the-back half-court shot swish to get the, those guys uh, their their commitment. It was uh, it was a lot of fun uh, to get that. Oh, they also didn't commit for like another month, which I was I was upset about. But they they <laughs> they followed through on the on the deal. If I'm not mistaken, did they commit like on a Sunday? Uh, I do a, that. I don't remember. I, I do remember that they were calling me. Yeah, they were messing with me. They called me to. They called me and said, "Man, we're not committing." And I was just devastated, like, oh, you know, hey, guys, uh, I hate to hear that. And I actually said this, and said, it doesn't even matter where you guys are going to go. I, I wish you the best. And then they just busted out laughing. They were both on the phone like, yep. man, coach, we're coming to Bowie State. I I was like in tears. You know, you put a lot of work and effort in, into to building the relationship. And when you know Guys are winners and they're champions, and they can they can really make an impact not just on your basketball team, but in your in your community and your school's ecosystem. And they were those type of guys. Um, it, it means a lot to you, and, and I'm so happy that it worked out. But those son of a guns, man, they they, they pranked me to to commit. That's that's how they did it. <laughs> but you know what? That's totally those two dudes. That's just, that was them. And you know, I remember getting the text from them saying they were coming. It was it was really exciting, and uh, the fact that they're going together was a big deal. I think I think if one would have committed, or you know, they were on the fence together with a lot of that stuff. And you know, it was fun watching them on ESPN because that was where the CIAA title game was always on ESPN. And, and if I'm not mistaken, it's the same place that the Charlotte Hornets play. Is that correct? In that where they yeah. have that? Yeah. And. Uh, you know, I always pick with Meter. Meter was one of those kids that I always wanted to coach, and I was fortunate after I left Goretti that I was able to get on Barry's staff and be around Meter. You talk about a kid that was competitive. He, yes, he had his things where he was just a little bit off with when he would when he loses mind. Meter lost his mind, but when he wanted to rip your throat out, 
he was going to rip it out. And he was going to make sure that the whole entire gym knew that he ripped your throat out. I remember him hitting a three on ESPN and just kind of looking to the fans and thinking, like, the dudes kind of made it. And that was a proud yeah. moment as a coach, you know, and Najee just, like, dunking on everybody. And, you know, Najee's a little Virginia Beach kid, and he came up, and he was soft as hell. God, he was so soft. And we just kind of molded him. And, you know, we'd always tell him, like, man, you just want me to call your mom. Your mom come pick you up. You don't want to go to class? We'll just have your mom come pick you up. You don't want, you're just wasting your time. He'd get so pissed at us. But then when it – you know, when it was time, he made big boy decisions, and he made the right when he went to Bowie. He played overseas for a while, did very well for himself, and like you said, they both graduated, which is the biggest part of this whole thing that we try to do is get them that piece of paper. So absolutely, absolutely, and you know when when, when Coach Brooks uh, came up to to see Meter, um, he looks at me and says, "That kid's crazy." I said, "Yeah, Coach, he's the perfect type of crazy for us because we had." a bunch of very talented players, uh, but we didn't have a voice. We didn't have anyone that was just super fiery. And, you know, at that time, uh, Coach John Thompson uh, was on the radio in the D.C. area. And I remember uh, I would listen to his show religiously, and I remember him telling a story about a player that he went to recruit and during jump ball, the guy gets in a – literally after he tips the ball, he gets in a fight. And he walks out the gym and the fan stops and says, you going to stop recruiting him, coach? He said, absolutely not. I'm, I'm going to take him. And he does. And, and his line that he uses, I'd rather calm down a fool than resurrect a corpse. If I can, if I can channel his energy the right way, then I, I know we can make him a successful uh, young man, not just as a basketball player, but we were able to then channel that energy also in, in basketball and in, you know, his entrepreneurial spirit and, um, it, you know, et cetera. So that was, that was a fun, uh, process to be part of. And, uh, you know, when you, when you see that type of a competitor, um, to me, like I, I know I can win with that type of guy. I know we can be successful with the person that every single possession matters to them. Um, mm-hmm. and knowing that, Everyone has been coached differently. Um, you know, you you guys uh, were, were really good for them, but you know, you only get a two years uh, in JUCO. Um, but then you, you look at someone's you know track record, and you go back and you know high school. You know, he's not in a super competitive league or an environment. Uh, you know, up there in PA, and so you start to think, okay, well, if we put him in, in our environment, how will how will he? Um, act and react and we thought and, and believed that he would be a very successful individual in the way coach brooks ran his program and you know that came to that came to light and so um i i loved th- that whole evaluation process it was very helpful and informative for me uh later on in my career to want to trust my gut my instincts what i what i've seen and just how i can understand people um those two guys were, were a great case study in that because I can look back now and see that, you know, she's a, he's even a sports agent. He's doing highly successful things. I, I knew it was in him. Um, and I wasn't going to hold it against him that he wasn't the finished product that we know they could be today as men when they weren't 
fully grown men. They were 17, 18, 19 years old and still learning their way. Um, that's our job in, as coaches. We, we have to help them uh, realize their potential on and off the court. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, uh, we should not discredit, um, you know, maybe some of their their imperfections. None of us are perfect, Chad. Yep. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Nope. And we surely shouldn't expect a 17 or 18-year-old young man um, to, to be perfect. Uh, but if we can see uh, potential in them, then we should we should bring it out of them. And, and it was it was great to, to be part of them. I stay in touch with those guys to this day. I'm going to hit them up, actually, when we get done with this and um, see what they're up to. But uh, I, I love those guys. And I'm very grateful to have been able to go through that process with them and with you. Yeah, and I, and I like I said, I learned a lot from you. And, you know, we can kind of go back. I remember... I remember exactly where I was driving. I was leaving. I want to say it was the DC Metro Showcase that summer. I was down recruiting a little bit, and I was battling against uh, Coach Kelly out of Harcum. Drew was down. Uh, my goal was to always be the first dude in the, in the building because they always had that. You always had that piece of paper, that whiteboard. Coaches here. I always wanted HCC to be at the top because I wanted everybody to know I was there first. That was one of my, one of my goals. And uh, but I remember when you called me that you got the NC State gig, and then we talked. I, I want to say you were driving, if I'm not mistaken, down to Raleigh. We talked for like 30 seconds. It was like boom, boom, boom. And you're like, Chad, I'm turning my freaking phone off. I'll talk to you in a couple of days. And you just cut your phone off. I remember like you just needed that time to just reflect as you drove down the road to Raleigh because I'm sure your phone, you know, went sideways once the, the news broke that you had taken that job. But I do remember where I was when you when you uh, told me that you had gotten that job. That was really cool, and I and I know that my guys probably helped you in that. And uh, you know, I, and then that's kind of a cool feeling too, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, they uh, they did. You know, just uh, you know, again, it, it's nothing can ever uh, take the place of real world experience and real life experience and you know putting together a, a presentation to show those guys on why Bowie State and why Division two would be best for them um, which I still have saved on my computer ironically uh, and the, you know and, and selling our assets the CIAA tournament which is the, the highest grossing uh, college basketball event in the nation of any event mm-hmm. um, and, and that's because of the economic impact to the city of Charlotte um, when uh, you know so many people travel and, and the, the business opportunities that come of it and hey, if you cut down some nets in this event you're, you're going to make uh, some, some friends and both of those guys did that um, so having that opportunity to to build that out and, and create that experience really helped me um, then going into an NC State where Coach Godfrey said, okay, I want you to, to curate our in-home visits. And, you know, we, we didn't really do a lot of in-home visits in Division Two, but we, we did presentations. And so because of that, now I can, um, I can do that. And um, now I have resources. So it's more than just Microsoft Word that I can use um, I've got a budget, and now I can go create a an iPad app yep. that is interactive. Holy cow, that was a lot of fun, man! And, and you know, Coach Godfrey 
the one thing uh, he he would constantly do because uh, you know you come from Division Two, it's all about save money, save money, save money. He's like, you know, be be resourceful, but be creative and push the envelope. So now let's really test your, you know, your your skill set here. How what kind of product can you deliver um, within reason in, in terms of cost? And uh, I, I was able to do that because of those experiences and. That's part of what, what coaching is. You layer experiences upon experiences upon experiences, and that's what allows you and helps you to um, grow as a, a coach, as an individual, and, and gain um, success. And that's one thing when I, when I mentioned earlier, when co- you know younger coaches ask for advice, um, and they, I ask them, okay, well, what kind of position are you looking for? And if it's a high school coach that says, well, I want to get a low D1 assistant job or, uh, you know, maybe a high major Dobo job and say, okay, cool. Conversation is over. Um, I'm not the person to give you advice because you're looking to skip steps. And I vehemently disagree with that approach because even if you did that, you're, you're not going to be as successful as you, you probably deserve to be mm-hmm. uh, because you're not going to have the experience and maybe the opportunity to make a couple of mistakes in a, in a less stressful environment um, as it leads up to it. So, um, you know, that's, that, that was important to me to, to be able to do that and, and build upon those experiences to where I am today. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm, I, I'm honored, you know, I always tell a lot of people, like I knew you when you were at Maryland, the dude yelling on the bench, you always had the big tan suit on. If I remember, I'm just giving you a hard time on the tan suit, but I remember the tan suit on the end of the bench. I was and, uh, undefeated in that tan suit. I wore it for the first time. <laughs> Uh, at Bowie State, when Meter and Najee came to our game against IUP, who was number two in the country at the time, we ended up beating those, those guys were in the final list for Najee and Meter as well. Yep, Coach but, Lombardi. Uh, I, I wore that suit because they, they dared me. I wouldn't do it. I actually was in, uh, I was in Coles, and I was texting these guys, and it was on the rack for like 30 bucks. Uh, that suit, you know, you, you coach, you don't got a lot of money, and I needed to get a suit. And it's this bright white cream suit, and Patino had just done the same uh, while coaching in Louisville. And I sent a picture to those guys saying, "Hey, would, should I buy this suit and wear it for that game?" Uh, and you know, the game was coming up that weekend, and they were like, "You won't, you won't." Oh, okay, I will, and boom. So yeah, I, I spent thirty in my mind. I, it was worth the uh, embarrassment of wearing a a white suit if it could be considered as such. I love that suit. I still have it to this day. Um, and a $30 investment to get those kids laughing at me and joking about it for the rest of the year. And they did that. And you know what that also accomplished? Me occupying their thinking space. So anytime I, I get a picture or if I wear that suit, I'd send it, uh, send it to them. And we'd have a, a common uh, moment and experience to laugh and joke about that I was able to kind of ride all the way to them uh, signing their letter of intent. You know, I give you a lot of credit because you wore that suit the whole game. <laughs> Remember, Patino supposedly spelled Diet Coke on his and he went back to his black suit at that time. I wore that Maryland too. I was undefeated in that, in that thing. I still am. I actually... Uh, I'll only uh, very selectively bring that, that suit out. I'll wear it about once a year, every year, but uh, haven't lost in that suit. That, that, I, like I said, I remember that. That's awesome. Um, 
you know, Coach, I appreciate your time. I know you're a busy dude. I know you got a lot going on, and I know, like, you know, social media, you're really good on that, and, and you pump a lot of good stuff out. I, like I told you before we got on the show, like, I got off of social media. Um, it's the best decision I ever made. It was kind of like, you know, we, we talk about different addictions, and, and you and I talked about that before we got on the air, but social media was one that, would, for me, with my mindset, was constantly chasing stuff that I didn't need to, likes and, you know, uh, thumbs ups and all that kind of stuff. And it just was bad for me. And I've been in a much better place. And I know you share with me that you have like a, on your phone, you didn't realize how much you were actually on your phone and you said it for every hour, it could kind of like stop itself. And then you were able to get away from it. You said the last couple of days have been good. So I hope for you, you're able to kind of keep catching your breath and clearing your head on that stuff. Yeah. I think, you know, I, you, you use social media as a tool. Um, then it can be really effective and productive. But if you live on it and you allow it to shape uh, too much of uh, your your judgments, um, you know, it's it's unhealthy, yep. especially with everything that uh, you know we consume on social media uh, nowadays. It's it's really evolved. Um, for me, right now, as a you know, as a someone that's not coaching, I don't necessarily have something to market um, and sell, and so therefore. I, I've got the luxury of maybe taking a step away. Now I'll, I'll be um, kind of really uh, ramping it up uh, when I when I do go to Aruba and we start promoting this event. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's something that um, you, know, you I, I talk about when I when I'm coaching guys using your your dribble as a weapon and, and not a toy, meaning don't uh, you know over dribble and don't uh, do unnecessary things. Social media is the same. Uh, to me, it, 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 if you use it as a weapon um, in a positive way to, to accomplish what you want to accomplish, uh, and you know whether it be marketing, branding, communication, um, outreach, whatever, uh, then it can be really good. But if, but if you use it as a toy, um, then you know there's diminishing levels of return. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know I I have the luxury right now to kind of de-emphasize social media a little bit in my life, which has been really good. Um, and, and this is only a one-week case study, uh, as you and I were talking about, because um, I just, you know, had that epiphany of like, okay, enough's enough. Let me get away from this uh, device. But, um, you know, each of us, whether we're in basketball or not, you know, we can't turn turn it all the way off. There, you know, social media is a part of our reality and a part of our lives. And um, if we can u- utilize it for effective, um, you know, a, an effective purpose and a positive, uh, seeking positive solutions, I think it's uh, it's really good and it's really healthy. But um, Chad, I appreciate you giving me a chance to. to talk with you about all this stuff, talk about wildest dreams. I would have never in my wildest dreams thought when, when you and I met, um, which really goes back to when you were coaching Goretti and I see toilet paper getting thrown on the court after you guys score your first bucket. I remained um, calm during that. Remember? Huh? I remained calm during that. Remember? You were, it was, <laughs> I was like, what the hell is going on? And why is it not a technical foul? And why is this coach not reacting? And after the game, I was like, I just have to go talk to this guy about the, the, the toilet paper. Like, what the heck just happened? And for those listening, uh, you know, that's that's a tradition uh, for you guys at Coretti in that yep. in that tournament. Yep. First bucket, right? Yep. Uh, toilet paper you thrown on the, on the court. 
uh, stop the game. But, um, you know, from, from there to here, we, we've both grown as, as men, as, as coaches, uh, and as individuals. And, you know, for, for anyone listening, you know, in your wildest dreams, whatever they may be, you, you can accomplish it. Yep. You can you can make it happen. And I challenge everyone to, to dream those wild dreams. Um, I've, I've got wild dreams. I've got big goals and aspirations, and I will, will not let anyone deter me uh, from those goals and, and dreams. Uh, it takes, you know, some, some resolution. And, and from time to time, uh, you know, you, you might get thrown off course, um, but the, the pathway to success is not a straight line. And um, because of that, if you're if you're willing to uh, go through the peaks and valleys of, of climbing a mountain, uh, you know that 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 mountaintop is is very joyous. And uh, I appreciate you, you know, kind of allowing me to to go down memory lane with you and sharing some of the things that you shared because I didn't know that. And um, man, that's an that's an empowering feeling um, that that. You know, you, you've you've inspired me today just by with these memories, and I appreciate that so much. You're you're very welcome, and likewise, likewise, I appreciate you spending you know your morning as the inauguration still going on. I'm sure hopefully you'll be, be able to go back and catch some of what uh now President Biden said while he uh, had his speech while we or you and I were talking. But uh, do me one favor, <clears throat> take that tan sure. suit to Aruba because you're going to remain undefeated. You're going to get that thing done. I know, I know that's going to be the next big thing for. Nemo Omidbar, and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in November 2021 for you with that. I appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot. I'll keep you in the loop, and uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate you having me on. Hey, not a problem, man. You have a good rest of your day. Stay safe down there in D.C. All right, brother. Take I, care. See you. I want to, again, thank Nemo for being on the show. Like I said, we were able to tell some stories and uh, go down memory lane a little bit. And, you know, the silver lining in that is it's fun to go down memory lane. It's fun to remember the good things in life. And sometimes we forget about those. We get caught up in our everyday lives and the stresses and the, the spider web of life. But sometimes it's nice to take a step back and just remember the good stuff. Thank you for listening to Never My Wildest Dream podcast. We will talk to you tomorrow.